Satsang happens, come rain or come shine, every week online, Saturday night. And if you want to come and continue to do practice with us, we would love to have you. You can sign up at satsanglive.com.au. So I hope you'll come and be nourished. If you'd like to continue deepening uh, your practice, if you want to develop a holistic practice or you have interest in the wisdom tradition of uh, Kashmir Shaivism or Tantra, we the greatest thing to come out of COVID is the programming department worked tireless, tirelessly to put the whole ashram on live. Uh, online, and so it's a whole worldwide movement that we've got going on with the full uh, weekly schedule of things. And so the greatest of those things, in my opinion, is that we have a study group every Tuesday night where we examine the source texts of this tradition, and it's a chance for us to go deeply into practice and spend time with Swamiji and ask questions about how do we engage this process of waking up? How do we be the most liberated we can be? And if you want to think good thoughts and feel good feelings, you need good ideas. And so study group is a great place to get those good ideas. Uh, just during this last year, we went through all of Swamiji's book, Consciousness is Everything. And this isn't just a, a survey of the tantric tradition. It's a deep dive into how to apply this wisdom to your life. And so all of the recordings of that are archived on Ashram Online. And so for just the price of what would be one less than one yoga class, uh, you can enroll in Ashram Online. And it's a full curriculum for a serious seeker. And study group happens every single week. We have online chanting programs, all kinds of things. And you can always keep abreast of what we have going on uh, by following us also on social media. And we have a special, special event coming up. Uh, that's on November the 7th. And this workshop is called The Awakening, A New Paradigm. And so this is happening at 10 AM uh, on November 7th. And we're celebrating an auspicious anniversary where Swamiji received a powerful wisdom initiation from his guru. Baba Muktananda. And this is the seed moment that birthed uh, all of self-inquiry, the Shiva process method that we explored tonight. And so Swamiji will be sharing the story of this powerful teaching he received from his guru, and he'll be initiating us into that same practice, that beautiful uh, practice of self-inquiry. So I hope that you'll join us for that. If you want to just engage with us more casually, we are on the old Instagram and Facebook. And so we lead uh, morning meditations every single day as long as lockdown goes on. And so if you want to keep doing self-inquiry meditation, we, the teachings are alive in each one of us who walk this path. And we're all sharing from our unique perspective every single morning on Instagram. And so if nothing else, we hope to see you on Instagram to do some self-inquiry for upward shift meditation. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, everyone, to Lockdown Melbourne. And uh, it's, it's good to see you all uh, out in Radioland tonight. We're opening up in Melbourne in a little while, I hear. It'll be very nice to have people back at Satsang again. But meanwhile, we have uh, the Ashramites who've been here, and all of you in Radioland, so welcome. I'd like to begin by remembering my teacher, Baba Muktananda, who began every talk 
by saying in Hindi, Sabko Parisanmane Kesat Pemse Hardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And this was his nightly welcome. And he would also say, I don't need to worship gods and goddesses. The deity I worship is the human being. Because the flame of God, the flame of consciousness, is blazing in each one. And even though he was born a Hindu, uh, he never said that he was teaching Hinduism. He called it the religion of man, or sometimes the universal religion. And he meant that what he taught belongs equally to everyone. Take the case of sleep. You can't say there's Catholic sleep and Jewish sleep or a black person's sleep as opposed to a white person's sleep or gay sleep or straight sleep. Their pajamas may be different, but sleep is the same for everyone. <clears throat> so meditation and the state of Turiya or higher consciousness belongs equally to everyone. I certainly didn't go to India to become a Hindu, but to find out about myself. My teacher often talked about the self or the Atman, and I thought about it a lot. What was the self he said was in me? <clears throat> was the self like an organ of my body, kind of an invisible organ of my body, uh, a mysterious yet hidden entity? Well, these days I describe it more simply it is the clear space of good feeling, an inner space which is quiet and lucid and has feelings that are peaceful and positive. The ha, you say, I know that space. Of course you do. Everyone knows. Everyone knows that space. But do you know how to stay in it when you have it and when you lose it to go back to it? If you can do those two things, well, you might very well be the next Buddha. <clears throat> it's priceless, it's uh, precisely to attain this wisdom that we meditate. This clear space of good feeling is not something ordinary. It's a potential within each of us, a potential we may have intuited, that, like as in there's more inside than people can see. There's more inside than I can manifest. It's a great power that we can unfold if we give it our attention. Even it's a spark of divinity. It is wisdom and is also love. As Devi Ma was talking, in our tradition it's called the Kundalini Shakti, the dynamic power that lies hidden within us, waiting to be awakened. So remembering that great power, I welcome you all, recognizing that the self, supreme consciousness, dwells within each one of us. Many years ago, I was an academic in the field of English literature. I loved poetry and imaginative literature, and I worshiped at the shrine of creativity. However, though I loved literature, after a short time, I fell out of love with academic life, but that's another story. <clears throat> but even as I was beginning my academic career, something was changing in me. 
I traced it all back to one event that happened to me in the late 60s when I was in graduate school. And I was visiting, I was living in the Lower East Side in Manhattan, in New York, uh, and I was visiting uh, a friend's apartment, and there was a knock on the door, and I, I was closest to the door, I went to the door, and I opened it and a gun was thrust in my face. And I could clearly see the bullets in the chambers and so on. Uh, <clears throat> and my first thought was, it's over. This is the end. And my second thought was, what a waste of all that good education. And my third thought was, what is this life if it can be snuffed out like that? Anyway, I survived that event, as you can probably figure out. Um, he was uh, a fellow looking for a person named uh, Dave Sinclair, who had burned him, as he said, in a drug deal. It was the Lower East Side in New York. Uh, and he uh, looked at all our driver's licenses. He found none of us were him. And he apologized quite graciously and left. Uh, but it made me start to wonder about deeper issues. Uh, what is life about? Why are we here? And especially, who am I? And I had no answer for any of these questions, but I eventually discovered that they were spiritual questions. I had no idea what they were. Uh, and so I started to look around in the, in the uh, spiritual sections of bookstores. Uh, and I became really interested in the Greek-Armenian teacher, Gurdjieff. I thought, wouldn't it be cool to meet someone like Gurdjieff? He, he'd been dead 50 or 80 years by then. Uh, meet someone like Gurdjieff or Jesus or the Buddha. Uh, but no one I know then was remotely like them. And I had no idea how to begin looking for such a person. A little while later, I was living in Chicago and teaching at one of the campuses of Indiana University, and I was invited to a dinner party at which the guest of honor was to be Richard Alpert, famous for doing psychedelic experiments with his uh, Harvard uh, running mate, Timothy Leary. Uh, so I was interested in that, and I got to the dinner. It was a very small dinner party, and I was seated next to the guest of honor. But Alpert had become Ramdas. He was wearing white, he had a long beard, and when he spoke to you, he would close his eyes and he would answer from some deep inner space. Uh, I was a little skeptical, but uh, in fact, the meeting was a transformation and revelation to me. Ramdas told me that there are great beings like the Buddha alive right now. And from that encounter, I realized that India was calling to me, that there was a teacher there for me. I didn't know who it was, but I had to go. And after I finished teaching that school year, my then wife and I traveled to India in a Volkswagen Kombi van. Uh, <clears throat> one sentence or a very complex trip, but anyway. In India, I had good fortune to spend time with a number of outstanding yogis and spiritual masters especially my own teacher, Swami Muktananda. Uh, I tell all about it in my book, Ganeshpuri Days, about the time in his ashram, which was the most transformative time of my life. These great beings had something to teach, 
something that was not ordinarily available. I had spent my entire life in the field of education, university, graduate school, and teaching at universities. But this was another kind of education that they were teaching. I call it second education, a kind of education that is essentially unknown in our educational system. This kind of education transforms the inner being. In the academy, we used our minds a great deal, but we never inquired as to how the mind itself worked. Second education examines that and is actually the science of human happiness. The yogis say that if we quiet our minds, we discover a deep region of ourselves which is more authentic and also full of joy and luminosity. It's like the, the noon sky. When you look up, we know there are millions of stars twinkling up in the sky, but during the, the day, the powerful light of the sun hides them. Uh, and in the same way, the endless chatter of our minds, the activity of our thoughts and our turbulent emotions occludes the true depths of our awareness. <clears throat> so the sages say that we also experience life through a web and tissue of language. In other words, whatever knowledge or understanding we have is conditioned by the way we think and speak about things. And that determines how we feel about things and about life. The philosophy of Kashmir Shaivism says that language is a matrix, a mother, that gives birth to our whole experience of life and also gives the emotional coloring to it. It holds our whole life. Actually, we live in two worlds, not one. There's this world, <clears throat> the outer world, which we all share. It has objects and other people in it. That's the world we usually call the world. But at the same time, each of us lives in another world that is private and individual, it's subjective. It doesn't have objects like chairs and automobiles. It only has thoughts and feelings. And there's nobody else in that world. You're all alone in it, as I am all alone in my inner world. And I'm referring to the inner world, and this inner world is the realm of second education. There are things unique to the inner world. So if I said to you, I'm feeling rather flat, would you run to the 7-Eleven and get me a kilo of happiness, please? You'd look at me funny. That's because you know that you can't buy happiness at the supermarket. I wish that it were so. Um, it's an inner world thing. And yet we continue to look outside for things that aren't there, things that are within. Notice I'm assuming that everybody who's watching, listening, uh, knows what I'm talking about when I talk about an inner world. I'm sure you do because we are all conscious beings. This talk is only for conscious beings. If you're not a conscious being, don't listen. Uh, to be a conscious being means to have an inner world. Conscious beings have interiority. They are aware of themselves 
in a subjective sense. They ask, who am I? And they assert, I am. And they keep some features of their inner world secret or private. <clears throat> you could measure the closeness of any relationship by how much of your inner world you reveal to that person, how vulnerable you allow yourself to be to them. <clears throat> and one essential part of our inner world is what we think about things. But arguably, the most important aspect of our inner world is how we feel about things. Ultimately, that's how we judge our life. For example, how do you feel right now? How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? How do you feel about your spouse, your children, your parents, your country, your politics, your religion? I could go on and on. <clears throat> what the great beings say about language is this. The way we feel about things, and many, many more things, has to do with our languaging about them. There are words we speak out loud and words we whisper to ourselves in our subjective and private inner space. These are our thoughts or our self-talk. It's obvious the, world, the words we use outside of ourselves are very important. They sustain or destroy our relationships. They create success and failure. If you go for a job interview, it's very important how you present and what you say and so on. But our inner words are just as important, if not more so. And I'm referring here to the stories and narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about our lives. I say that our subjective handling of our inner talk, our self-talk, creates our life and creates our universe much more than any external circumstance actually does. I say that we are at the mercy of mechanical and unintelligent ways of thinking and speaking about our lives that make us unhappy and ineffective. For example, there's the phenomenon that I call tearing thoughts. These are negative thoughts that we have about ourselves and about our lives that actually tear into our own heart. I'm talking about thoughts that we have, not thoughts that our worst enemy has. They tear into our own hearts. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. In fact, the ones we consider enemies are the ones who somehow know our tearing thoughts and repeat them to us. And then we really get upset. But we're meanwhile saying them to ourselves all the time anyway. <clears throat> we, have, we all have them, and these tearing thoughts undermine our lives. Thoughts are very powerful. They're seeds which sprout. Every object you see around you was once a thought in somebody's head. This pen was thought up by somebody. That jar was thought up by somebody. <clears throat> Every big plan and system began as a thought in somebody's head. No wonder thoughts we entertain in, in our inner space have such a powerful effect on our feeling and our well-being. Thoughts can go in two directions. They can create something beautiful, but they can also create something extremely painful. 
The philosophy of Kashmir Shaivism says that depression is like a thief that takes everything from your house, leaving you drained and powerless. Imagine when a thief comes in when you're not at home and just takes everything. You get back, you feel ripped off. You feel powerless. So depression is the same thing. It rips away our lifeblood. We feel completely uh, empty. Negative mind, tearing thoughts, anxiety deplete us and steal our life force. <clears throat> Why do we perversely entertain thoughts that hurt us, these tearing thoughts? Why do we do that? Well, it's irrational, but we do. We shouldn't, but we do. A Zen master I know says, we enjoy thinking negative thoughts. I don't know. But negative thinking is an addiction. We get addicted to so many things, alcohol, drugs, pornography, Instagram. That's the worst. <clears throat> we can't keep away from them. What is an addiction? An addiction is powerlessness. I know this is no good for me, but I can't help myself. This is the opposite of freedom. The Buddha said there's suffering, but he also said suffering can be overcome. I say that through meditation and understanding and by learning the laws of the inner world, we can transform our lives. We can move from depression to joy, from confusion to clarity. Even science is beginning to see this. Uh, advanced neuroscientists are discovering it. <clears throat> Two scientists, Andrew Newberg and Mark Wolven, write, the traditional neuroscientific view is that we cannot voluntarily influence non-conscious areas in the brain. So the traditional view is that we're basically powerless, we're mechanical. Uh, but through inner work, we can transform. They go on. However, it's been found that through meditation and mindfulness, human beings can think themselves into positive states of mind without any influence from the outside world so that we have freedom. When we become adept at meditation, we learn to decrease tension and stress. We let go of tearing thoughts and unwanted negative emotions and bring in desirable positive ones. We don't realize that we have the power and freedom to change these habits and to transform our minds from inside. We hear a lot of talk about freedom these days and about choosing and so on. Well, I'm pro-choice. I think we should choose good thoughts. And if we can choose the right kind of thinking Thoughts that are nutritious, just as we choose good food, we should also choose good thoughts. If we think nutritious thoughts, we uplift our life. And this is existential freedom. This is spiritual freedom. This has nothing to do with anyone else or any group or any, anything that's going on outside. This is a battle each one of us has to wage invisibly in our inner worlds. This is the spiritual battle. It's entirely in our own inner world. I said there's nobody else in there but you, and that's the mastery of the inner. The reward of that battle 
is to attain happiness, to attain peace, to attain joy. They used to ask my guru, Baba Muktananda, what his message was. He'd say, everyone should meditate. And one day I realized that this was a code. His full message was, everyone can be free of tearing thoughts. He never used that word, but he certainly understood it. Everyone can be free of tearing thoughts. Everyone can make intelligent choices. Everyone can live powerfully. Everyone can know the clear space of good feeling. It's all there if we grab it. The story we tell ourselves that we are weak and helpless and a victim is a fiction that we perpetuate. We should give it up. Then our life becomes full of love and full of peace. And this is no fantasy. This is reality. So let's meditate. When we have negative experiences in life, we contract. We get tense. Painful contraction. And Freud taught us that we carry the fossil record of many life experiences, traumas, within us unconsciously. Things we can't even remember, and they're stored somewhere inside of us. In meditation, we turn the mind around and point it back to its source, which is prior to the fossil record. The fossil record is not the deepest thing in us. The clear space of good feeling is deeper than the fossil record. <clears throat> and it's a realm of peace and joy deeper, the deeper reality. And this meditation that I'm going to lead is called Self-Inquiry Mindfulness Meditation. I'll lead you through an examination of four points within the body, the navel, the heart, the throat, and the third eye. These are key points that govern our thinking, feeling, doing, and communicating functions. Obviously, this is the emotional center, communication center, the intellectual center, and the will is centered in the navel. <clears throat> when we have inner conflicts and difficulties in life, it turns out that, these ten that they show up as tensions in these points, in all of these points or in some of these points. <clears throat> so we're going to become aware of what's there in the first part of this meditation and release whatever tensions we're carrying. And once we do that, we do the second part is now the energy will be flowing smoothly and in our meditation we can go deeper towards the true self. Once we clear away the debris of our contraction, of our tension, we can find the clear space of good feeling. So let's do that now. I'll lead you through the first part, and then uh, the last part we'll just meditate on the clear space of good feeling. The whole thing will take maybe 10 minutes. And so once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart Everyone who's come for the first time out in Radio Land, I hope one day soon people can join us here. Uh, so let's do the meditation now.
<clears throat> so the first thing, we'll close our eyes, turn within. Now, as I said, every one of us has an inner world, so already you've proven that you're a conscious being, if you understood me when I said turn within. So look around your inner world. This is your inner world. Nobody else there. There's no government there. There's no teacher there. There's no ex-wife there. There's no tormentor there. There's no bully there. There's not even an agreeable friend there. There's just you and your thoughts and your feelings. And so we're going to bring our attention down to the navel area. Feel the feeling in the navel area. Does that feel tense or relaxed? Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Feel the feeling in the navel area. Is it a clear space of good feeling? If not, relax. Bring in the thought, I let go. I relax. I surrender. I neither push nor pull. I relax. Now let's bring our attention up to the heart area, the emotional center in the center of the chest. Not the physical heart, but the emotional heart. Feel the feeling in the heart area. Does the heart feel pleasant or unpleasant? Does the heart feel open or closed? Is it agitated or peaceful? Is your heart a clear space of good feeling or not? If not, take a moment to let the bad feeling go. The heart is the organ of love, so the heart feels best when it's loving, not hating, when it's confident, not fearful. So say, I love, I'm at peace. Now let's bring our attention up to the throat area. Communication central. Feel the feeling in the throat. Does that feel pleasant? or unpleasant? Does the throat feel relaxed or constricted? Are you carrying tension in the throat? 
Is your throat a clear space of good feeling? Or is there tension? If it's tense, let the tension go. Say, I communicate with clarity and with love. I say what I need to say with love. I tell the truth with kindness. I give truth, but I also give kindness. And now let's go up to the third eye, the center of the brow, intellectual center. Feel the feeling in the brow. Does that feel pleasant or unpleasant? Does the brow center feel tense or relaxed? Is your third eye a clear space of good feeling or a confused space of misery? Let go the confusion, let go the worry. Say to yourself, I see the truth. Say to yourself, there's a great light in my third eye. Now see if you've come closer to the clear space of good feeling within. You've gotten rid of some of the tension and so on. And now just stay with the clear space of good feeling. I'll set my clock and we'll meditate for five minutes. Meditate on the clear space of good feeling. When you move away from it, try to get back to it. When you're in it, stay with it. Let's meditate now for five minutes. <laughs> 